your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. We are continuing our series on exploring our identity in Christ. And uh, this is another message that comes by request. We'll be looking at Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 7, but really uh, the focus is on Ephesians 2 verse 6. So Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7. Uh, before I read, I invite you to bow with me as you ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word this morning. Lord God, how good it is to worship in Your house. How good it is, O Lord, to sing of Your praises, to exalt You as the one who has the first place over all things, to crown You with many crowns, to sing of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior, Redeemer, Lord, and King. And now, O Lord, I pray that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would fill us with your spirit, O Lord, that your spirit might reign in this place. And there be no room for the enemy to snatch away the truths of your word, but that we might hear them with hearts that are cultivated to receive that it might bear fruit, that it be for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 7. And like I said, the message will focus on verse 6. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And here's the focus of our message this morning. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You may be seated. <clears throat> Whether we know it or not, there is a battle going on, and every one of us is part of it. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the, the powers and authorities and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that there is a war waging within our souls. And he urges us in 1 Peter 5 to be alert and of sober mind because he says our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
for every one of us, even at this very moment, there is a spiritual battle raging for our souls. There are spiritual forces of evil that, that wage war against us. And, and the battle manifests itself in a thousand different ways. Maybe your faith is under attack and you are battling deep doubts and questions. Maybe your health is under attack and, and the enemy is trying to use that to pull you into the realm of despair and fear. Maybe you're battling to live out a God-glorifying marriage. Maybe your mind is a battleground for lustful thoughts and, and war is being waged to pull you into these repeating patterns of sin. Maybe your soul is at war with our culture of abundance. And you find yourself constantly, as Jesus said, choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures. We are at war. And David Platt says that the scope of this spiritual war is universal. He says it involves every language, every people, every nation, every tribe, every church, every family, every life. Your involvement in this war, he says, began the day you were born. It is a cosmic battle, and you and I are right in the middle of it. It is into this reality of spiritual warfare that the Apostle Paul speaks words of deep hope and assurance in Ephesians 2, verse 6. Now, as always, if we want to fully appreciate the meaning and significance of this, this one sort of isolated, this one verse from Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we, we have to read it within its context. So let me run through it very quickly with you. Paul says in verses 1 through 3, so the first three verses, that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were slaves to Satan as the ruler of the kingdom of, of the air. That we were bent on gratifying the cravings of our flesh, that is the cravings of our sinful nature. And that we were therefore deserving of God's wrath. This is the universal human condition. These three verses, and Ephesians 2, these, these first three verses are basically a condensed version of the first three chapters of Romans. Paul is kind of making the same point, just he just draws it out in Romans much more than he does so here. This is a very condensed version of the first three chapters of Romans where Paul describes the universal human condition progressing from, from Gentiles and then to Jews and then to all of humanity. We are all by nature dead in sin, slaves to the enemy, and deserving of God's wrath. But it's into this gloomy diagnosis that Paul speaks the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in verses 4 and 5 that God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. And so he brought us from death to life, from slavery to freedom, from condemnation to salvation. And he did this, Paul says, not because of anything we had within ourselves that was deserving of it, but he did this because of his great love for us, by his own initiative, an overflow of his own nature as one who is rich in mercy. And so Paul says, it is by grace you have been saved. Now it seems like that would be a really good place for Paul to end. 
right? You know, we were dead in sin, but God made us alive with Christ. We are saved by grace alone. End of story. God's glory is exalted. And it would be a great place to end, but Paul doesn't end there. Uh, He says there is even more. There is grace upon grace, gift upon gift. Just when we think that it couldn't possibly get any better, there couldn't be any more that God could possibly do for us or give us in Christ, Paul goes on and he says in verse 6 that not only did we... Have we died with Christ to our sin and been raised with him to new life? But he says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Not only did he save us from our sin, but he has, Paul says, joined us with Christ in his ascension and in his, what is the theological term, his session, his being seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. And so our identity in Christ is an identity in which we are seated in the heavenly realms. That's the focus of our message this morning. Our identity is those seated in the heavenly realms. And we're gonna, I'm going to frame this message around three questions that the first being, well, what does it mean that we are seated in the heavenly realms? The second, for what purpose are we seated in the heavenly realms? And then the third, what difference does it make? Or if you want a, sort of a condensed version of those three questions, it's, it would be the, the what, the why, and the so what. So we see first what it means. What it means that we are seated in the heavenly realms. Now, we kind of do this in an inductive way, so we're kind of put some bits and pieces together, and we'll see at the end what it means, okay? So, throughout Ephesians, the phrase heavenly realms refers mainly, primarily, some might say exclusively in Ephesians, to the domain of spiritual forces of evil. In general, that phrase heavenly realms refers more broadly, more generally to the realm of spiritual beings, including angels and demons. But in Ephesians, the focus is on the the demonic, the spiritual forces of evil. Paul says at the end of chapter 1 that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name, and every name that is invoked. And God placed all things under his feet. So Christ being seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms means that he has been given the position and the status of supreme authority and power. That he is sovereign over all rulers and all powers. But when Paul says that God has placed all things under his feet, this suggests that Paul has in mind not just all powers and rulers in general, which of course is true. Christ is supreme over all human kings and rulers, all angels, all good rulers. But, but the focus here for Paul is on not just all powers and rulers in general, but particularly the spiritual forces of evil. Let me show you where... That comes from where, why I would say that, what the connection is. Paul's reference that God placed all things under his feet is an allusion, a very clear allusion to Psalm 110, which is a messianic psalm that anticipates the Messiah who will triumph over all his enemies. 
So in Psalm 110, God says to this king, anticipating the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And now Paul says what the psalmist anticipated is fulfilled in Christ. It is Christ who has been seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realms where his, where his enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. And so the heavenly realms is the domain of spiritual forces of evil. We see this, I think, even more clearly when we turn to Ephesians chapter 6 where Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. All of those words that Paul uses, the, the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, spiritual forces, all of them refer to the demonic, to the, the, the negative, the forces of, of evil. And so for Paul, the heavenly realms is the domain of the spiritual forces of evil. And that Christ has been seated there at the right hand of his Father means that he has been given ultimate power and authority over these spiritual forces of evil, that he has triumphed over them. He is their sovereign, and every ruler in the universe must submit to his lordship, as Paul said in Philippians 2, that he's been given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, every intelligent being in the universe must submit to his lordship. But the astounding thing here in Ephesians 2 is that Paul says that God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. Now, there's clearly an already and not yet tension in this statement, an already but not yet realization, right? We, we are not yet with Christ in the fullness of his glory and the fullness of his presence. That is still to come. But Paul says that there is, a, very clearly he says there is a sense in which we have already been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. He doesn't say you will be seated with him. He says you have been, you are already you seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And what he means, I believe, is that even now we share in his power and his authority over the spiritual forces of evil. That through our union with Christ, Satan has no claim on us. His demons have no power over us. In Christ, they must submit to us just as they submit to him. And if you think about that, that is an, that is an astounding reality. I think we see this pretty clearly played out in the Gospels. Jesus said in John 14, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. What were those works? Well, they included casting out demons, rebuking the, the winds. Almost so much of what Jesus did was exerting his authority over the kingdom of darkness, whether it was in the realm of health or nature or the demonic. And, and Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. Because I am going to the Father in the heavenly realms, and I will do whatever you ask in my name. We read in Luke 9, 
that Jesus called the disciples together, the 12. And Luke says that he gave them, that is the 12, power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. Then we see the same thing a chapter later in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus now sends out not just the 12, but he sends out 72 kingdom servants to be ambassadors of the kingdom of light in a world that's under the rule of darkness. And Jesus said to these 72, I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. How much power? A little bit of the power, some of the power of the enemy. No, Jesus says, all the power of the enemy. I have given you power to overcome all of it. And do you remember what happened? The 72 went out into the world proclaiming the message, the good news of Jesus and doing real battle against the kingdom of darkness in the name of Jesus, the the king of light. And Luke says they came back after doing that kingdom work. And he says, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Well, what is that? That is the manifestation of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 6. This is a working out of our identity as those seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Through our union with Christ, we have a real and present authority over the spiritual forces of evil. Which means that our identity in Christ is an identity of victory and triumph. We are, as Paul says in Romans 8, more than conquerors through him who loved us. So that's what it means that we are seated in the heavenly realms. It means that we have been given in Christ a position, a status, a position of power and authority over the spiritual forces of evil in the world. But then Paul goes on to say, so this is the next question, for what purpose or why? He goes on to say that we've been seated in the heavenly realms for a purpose, And he tells us what that purpose is. He says, God seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms in order that, almost always when you see those words in in English, in order that, it's a translation almost always of the Greek henna, which is a purpose clause. So it's a signal that says, for this purpose. This is the purpose for, for, for why God seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. In order that, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So the ultimate purpose of our being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms is for the display of God's glorious grace. John Stott uh, tells about a time when he was a student at Ridley Hall. And at that time, uh, the Reverend Paul Gibson uh, was principal and he was retiring as principal, and uh, in, in honor of him and his work as principal over the years, uh, they, they hired an a, a artist to, to paint a portrait of him. And that portrait was unveiled at this retirement party for the Reverend Paul Gibson. And it was a beautiful portrait. And when uh, Reverend Gibson uh, stood up to receive uh, you know, his, his uh, celebration, uh, he gave a a really well-deserved compliment to the artist. And so in expressing his thanks, 
He said that in the future, people looking at the picture would, would ask not, who is that man? But instead, who painted that portrait? God is like a master artist who has put on display his greatness and glory in what he has done for us in Christ. So that people will look at that and say, not how great we are. Who, you know, who are they that God has done that for them, but instead, how great must God be that he has done that for them? We are, as John Stott said, exhibits of God's skill and trophies of God's grace. In fact, as Paul says, our being seated in the heavenly realms shows the incomparable riches of God's grace. And that word incomparable means literally to throw beyond. It's a translation of the Greek word hyperbalo. Hyper meaning beyond or exceeding. Balo meaning to throw. So literally to throw beyond is what that word means. And it is used figuratively to indicate in extreme measure, an extreme degree. The word implies that the riches of God's grace are beyond measure. They are, as some translations say, immeasurable. I think J.C. Ryle captured well the immeasurable nature of God's grace when he wrote, who can estimate the value of God's grace? It is something unspeakable and incomprehensible. It passes human understanding. There are two things, he says, which man has no arithmetic to reckon and no line to measure. One is the extent of man's loss who loses his own soul. The other is the extent of God's grace in rescuing sinners. And we would add, in placing them in Christ, in seating them with Christ in the heavenly realms. Our exalted Status with Christ in the heavenly realms reveals how richly and how super abundantly God has lavished us with his grace. Our identity puts on display the surpassing greatness and mercy of the God who gave us that identity. As Anne Lamott once said, grace means that you are in a different universe from where you had been stuck when you had absolutely no way to get there on your own. That's a great definition of grace. You're in a different universe from where you had been stuck when you had absolutely no way to get there on your own, from slavery to sin to seated in the heavenly realms. There's no way that you're going from slavery to sin to seated in the heavenly realms on your own. You're not even going from slavery to sin to non-slavery to sin on your own. God has done this for the purpose of putting on display the immeasurable riches of his grace. He has brought us into the universe of almighty glory when we had no way to get there on our own. That brings us then to our last question. What difference does this make? What difference does it make that we are seated in the heavenly realms? So what? Well, I want to leave us this morning with three answers to that question, or three, if you prefer to think of them this way, three applications. Number one, it frees us from the tyranny of finding our identity in comparison to others. In a culture driven by platform, by social media, by performance and by influence, it is so easy to get sucked into the fruitless cycle of comparison and shame. 
Our identity in Christ lifts us out of the fray so that we don't find our identity, our identity in comparison to others. We find our identity in Christ. We are those who are seated with him in the heavenly realms. That's who we are. It renders obsolete all earthly comparisons and all earthly performances and influences. In her book, uh, Seated with Christ, Heather Holloman speaks to this issue. I, I haven't read the book, um, but the person who told me about the book, whom I trust, says, and who gave me the idea to do this message, says that she encourages readers to live freely in a culture of comparison as we find our identity in Christ. So as those who are seated with him in the heavenly realms, we are treasured by him. That, that's who we are treasured by him and given a place at his table and a place of position and authority with him right by his side. Number two, it means that we are to set our hearts and minds on things above. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, this is kind of an outworking of Ephesians 2 verse 6. He says, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. There's that same language, that same expression. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. If we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, then we ought to live like it. That's what Paul is saying. We ought not return in our hearts or in our minds to the things below because we've been placed above in the heavenly realms with Christ. We ought to put to death those things that belong to the old earthly nature. And then Paul goes on in Colossians 3 uh, to, to list all kinds of things that belong to that earthly nature. He says, just to name a few, sexual immorality, lust, greed, anger, malice, slander, deceit, and on and on the list goes. I remember very well my first class in the doctoral program at Trinity. The uh, professor, we, so I got there for my week on campus, and the first day, the first class, the professor assigned each of us it was an exegetical assignment. Uh, to, to, he gave each of us a, a scripture text. We had to do the exegesis on it and give an exegetical presentation the next day. And so, and of course, we had class all day, so we had very limited time. We had to do, you know, do it late at night. Um, and so the next day, we all come back to give our, our presentations in front of class, these exegetical assignments. And about halfway through the presentations, I think there was maybe like 18 students, so maybe about after nine had given their presentations, the professor uh, kind of stopped everything and he, and he uh, gave us a little lecture expressing his disappointment. And I'll never forget what he said. It was very short and very to the point. He said, you guys are giving me undergraduate level presentations. He said, that, that may have, that may have uh, worked in your master's level classes, but it's not going to work here. He said, you guys, your, your doctoral students act like it. And that was kind of a wake-up. That was my initiation into the doctoral program at Trinity. But that's kind of the message that Paul gives to us as believers. He says, you're not at the same level that you used to be. It would be fine if you, you know, lived that way. You'd expect to live that way if you hadn't come to Christ. 
And of course, he can, you know, be drawn to the old things of the old earthly nature. But you're not hopeless sinners anymore. You've been raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms. So live like it. Set your hearts and minds on things above. Desire the things of God more than you desire the things of sin. Find your satisfaction in Christ. Pursue him as as who he really is, the supreme treasure of the universe. Delight in the truths of God's word. Seek first the things of his kingdom. That we are seated in the heavenly realms means that we are to set our hearts and minds on things above. And finally, number three, it means that we are to live in deep assurance and confidence of victory over spiritual forces of evil. And this, I think, is really the main thrust of Paul's statement in Ephesians 2, verse 6, that God has placed all enemies under the feet of Christ, and now we are seated with him in the heavenly realm so that we share in his power and authority over all spiritual forces of evil. What this means for us is that our identity in Christ is an identity as victors. That there is, there is a spiritual battle raging all around and raging within us. But in Christ, we have been put in a position of victory over the schemes of Satan. We, we have access to victory over, over the temptations that seduce us. We have reason to expect victory over the powers of darkness that assail us and over the nightmares that plague us and the spirit of fear that grips us. And so when the enemy attacks your faith with deep questions and doubts, you fight back from a position of authority and power. When the enemy tries to pull you into a spirit of despair, you can conquer the despair, not from anything within yourself, but through your union with Christ, who's seated in the heavenly heavenly realms. When your mind is a battleground for lustful thoughts, you you don't fight with your own feeble weapons in the earthly realm. You fight with Christ at your side, seated in the heavenly realms where all spiritual forces of evil are under his feet. We are given in Christ a power to live triumphantly in an evil world. I experienced what I would call a a vivid example of this when I was on my internship in seminary. So that in seminary, back when I was in seminary, you had a a summer, what they call the summer assignments over three months. You served in some pastor role in a church, and then you had a year-long internship. And so on my year-long internship, I was serving at a church in Minnesota, and I was, there was a, uh, the senior pastor was there, so I was un- under him, learning from him. He was my mentor at that time, and we, we worked together. We, we did sermon series together, and he taught me ministry. It was, a, it was really a very formative time, I think, in my, in my training. And his name was Steve. And so when I got there, he had been working with a young woman who, who was, had all kinds of, of issues, and she had mental illness, and she had severe, severe uh, depression and, and, just, and severe spiritual oppression. 
There was major spiritual warfare going on, going on in this young woman's life. And so the first week that I was there, uh, we got a call to go to this young woman's house. And, uh, and he said, yeah, let's, let's go together. And so we went together. And, and uh, it was, it was uh, far beyond anything I was expecting. And uh, it was like nothing I had ever seen and nothing I've ever really seen since. So we went to this home of this young woman, and it was, there was just sort of this palpable darkness about the place, even when we drove up into the driveway and went into the, entered into the home, and she was very, very clearly under demonic oppression. Because when he walked into the home, it was like hitting a wall. And she was under a table in her kitchen and kind of prowling around on all fours with with foaming at the mouth, and she was screaming and shrieking and growling like an evil beast, and she was uttering all kinds of blasphemies against God and against Christ. And I thought, oh, wow, <laughs> never seen anything like this before. And we spent four hours doing spiritual battle in that home in the name of Jesus until finally the demonic oppression lifted I mean, this was in a very concrete and tangible way, a working out of our identity and status as those who are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms means that we live in deep assurance and confidence of victory over spiritual forces of evil. You see, whether we know it or not, there is a battle going on, and every one of us is part of it. There is a spiritual battle raging for our souls. There are spiritual forces of evil that wage war against us every single day. But into this reality of battle and war, Paul speaks these words of unimaginable hope and assurance that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We are participants in his victory over the spiritual forces of evil. So let us live then as more than conquerors to the praise of his glorious grace. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning for your victory over the spiritual forces of evil, that you have been seated at the right hand of the Father, the place of supreme authority over all rulers and authorities, and all enemies have been placed under your feet. And now we, O oh Lord, are seated with you through our union in Christ, we share in that victory, in that power, in that authority over the spiritual force of evil so that Satan has no claim on us and the demons have no grip on us. And they flee from us at the sound of your name. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we do not set our hearts and our minds on things above and forgive us for the ways that we do not live in the assurance 
of the victory that's been given to us in Christ. Lord, hear our silent prayers and responses this morning as we bring them before your throne in the silence of our hearts. O Lord, may your spirit so reign in us that we tell again and again the wondrous story of our Redeemer, how our lost estate to save in his boundless love and mercy he the ransom freely gave. Let us praise our dear Redeemer. His triumphant power we'll tell and how the victory he gives us over sin and death and hell. Oh, Lord, let us live in the boldness and the assurance and confidence of that victory in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.